Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jean-Frederic Colombel. He's a professor at uh, the Icon School at uh, Mount Sinai. We're going to be talking about uh, IBD, irritable bowel disease, uh, and various gastrointestinal uh, issues such as that. So, Jean-Frederic, thanks for coming. Uh, You're welcome. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research in your own words. Basically, um, as you can hear, I'm uh, I'm French. I've been working on uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which is uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis for almost 40 years now. Uh, During um, uh, 30 years when I was in France, in Lille University Hospital, which is in northern France, and I joined uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York uh, like 10 years ago. So basically, I I have seen um, all the development in... um, clinical research and translational research in IBD during those 40 years. So as a part of that, I've been involved uh, in many um, developments of uh, new drugs because what is amazing is that when I started 40 years ago, we didn't have so many drugs to treat uh, IBD, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and now we have made a lot of progresses. We have like um, almost 10 drugs uh, available for each of those diseases, and the number is still increasing. So we certainly have made a lot of progress, meaning that uh, as long as you can um, see the patients early in, a, in his or her disease course, I believe that in most of the cases you can control the disease with the tools that we have now. Uh, unfortunately, we we cannot we 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 can't uh, talk about cure, and you know this is what I was thinking when I started like 40 years ago. I was thinking in 40 years we'll have the cure. We don't have the cure, meaning that cure means no disease and no treatment. So even though we are able to bring our patients in what I will be calling deep remission, which is not only no symptom, but um, a perfect uh, endoscopy. So when you are doing a colonoscopy in those patients, uh, colon looks perfectly normal. Even when we take biopsies, uh, sometimes we are able to uh, bring down to normal. But the problem is that as soon as we stop the medications to which the patients are responding, um, most of them will relapse. So it's not uh, a real cure. This is why in the last uh, years, since I arrived at Sinai, and uh, especially during the last three, four years, I have turned my attention and uh, not all of my research, but some part of my research to uh, the prediction and prevention of uh, IBD, which looks very ambitious. uh, But um, I'm... We are basically following the tracks of what the endocrinologists are doing for diabetes, the rheumatologists are doing for rheumatoid arthritis, meaning uh, we are trying to predict the occurrence of the disease 
several years before the first symptom is occurring in order to be able to prevent. So, of course, uh, it's a kind of dream, but I must say that we have done significant progresses, uh, especially in the last year, and I'm very happy uh, about that. So I'm not sure uh, I will see the prevention in my career, but at least uh, this is a very promising, promising track. So basically okay, we okay, have... Okay, so, so you've been doing this for 40 years. Um, in terms of why various IBD conditions happen, is there any insight there as to how they arise in the so, first place? Yeah, so um, when I started, we had nothing. You know, we didn't know anything. What The only thing that we knew is that those diseases were mostly prevalent in Europe and U.S. and Northern uh, America. And what we have seen during the last 20 years is that those diseases are now spreading all over the world, in China, in uh, India, Eastern Europe, uh, Africa, uh, South America, which speaks for environmental factors. Um, but uh, I think uh, breakthrough discovery has been when we were able to identify with a, a team of European colleagues, and this was reproduced by uh, U.S. colleagues as well, the first uh, gene uh, involved in Crohn's disease, which is called NOT2. This was uh, a, a fantastic discovery in 2001, but <laughs> the problem is that it was not uh, the end, it was uh, just the beginning, because now we are we know that there are more than 200 genes which are involved in predisposition to this uh, IBD, and uh, the genetic load, the genetic risk, only accounts for approximately 25% of irritability, meaning that these diseases obviously, uh, these diseases are, they have obviously a strong environmental component, which explains also why they are spreading all over the world. And um, we have not made a lot of progresses as far as this environmental component because they are very difficult to study. And this is something else that I'm very interested in uh, as well. So uh, what, are, what are the major diseases? Is, is Crohn's a subset of IBD? Is, yeah, what are the, the major the, names? Yeah, yeah, the two diseases that I'm uh, talking about, and I should have started with that, are Crohn's disease which have been described by Beryl Crohn, who was a doctor uh, in my institution in 1932 at, at Mount Sinai in New York, and uh, ulcerat uh, ulcerative colitis. So um, these are the two diseases forming uh, what we call inflammatory bowel disease. There are some similarities, but some also striking differences for those two diseases. Very often the medications that work for one also work for the other, um, not always, but in the great majority for the great majority of the drugs that are uh, available. What's the difference between ulcerative colitis and uh, Crohn's disease? So basically, uh, ulcerative colitis is a disease mostly of the mucosa, so it's rather superficial, involving the superficial part of the gut, and the major difference is that ulcerative colitis always involves the rectum and sometimes a, a, some part of the colon of the large of the large bowel. So it could be only the rectum or the left part of the colon as well or the whole colon. 
but it doesn't extend uh, further. But when you say the uh, the left part of the colon, is that the ascending or the transverse or the descending? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, 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 exactly. So it can it can involve only one part of the colon or the whole or, or the whole colon. The rectum is always involved, but Crohn's disease can involve the whole GI tract from the mouth to the anus. And Crohn's disease is different because it's a transmural process meaning that it's not only the uh, upper layer of the gut which is involved, it's uh, all the um, uh, different layers of the bowel wall. And this explains as well the complications of Crohn's disease, which are obstruction, because when the wall is becoming very thick, it can obstruct because the lumen is narrowing. And the second complication typical of Crohn's disease, which is fistulizing, meaning that the inflammatory process can go through the bowel wall and giving a fistula to another organ or an abscess. What is a fistula? A fistula, basically, it's a communication between uh, two different parts of the gut or between the gut and the bladder or between the gut and the skin. Uh, and, uh, for instance, uh, one of the most uh, distressful uh, fistula are the fistula involving the anus, the perianal area, because this is a communication between the rectum of the anus and the skin. And of course, this is very painful and very disabling for our young patients. So is it a, um, is it a distension of the, you say it's a communication, but is it a distension of one wall where it pushes into another? Like what does a fistula look like? No, no, it's it's like uh, it's like a, a track, you know. It's like a track. There is a, basically a abnormal communication between the rectum and the anus. It's a it's a track which is um, uh, making the um, uh, communication. Sorry, between the the lumen of the of the of the bowel and the skin. And sometimes you may have multiple tracks involving the perianal area, which is which is very tricky to treat because. And when those tracts are obstructed, you can form abscess because those tracts very often they are draining, meaning there are some pus, some material coming from the lumen and to the skin. But when the tract is obstructed from one or other reason, then the pus uh, cannot go down and it's leading to abscesses, which is also very painful for the patients. How does a fistula form? Does it start with a hernia, like a hole, and then it lays down the track? This is a good question. And the answer is we don't know. We we don't know. And it's not all patients. It's approximately 25% of patients will have fistula, especially in the perianal area. And actually, your question is uh, very well well taken. We, We don't know the exact mechanism. Why? those uh, patients have uh, those uh, fistula. We are working on that, but so far the pathophysiology is not very well known. How well is the, um, are the interior walls of a fistula, uh, I mean, does is it, is it look like it's, it's finished? Like a, as if it was a construction product project, is it, is it finished? No, it, it's, it looks like a hole, you know? There is a hole. When, when you scope, you see that there is an internal hole, and then there is an external hole, and there is communication between the internal and the external. Is there a, a, like an endothelium in it? Is there a tube, or is it just holes? 
No, I mean it's a it's a track which is uh, basically uh, coming across the perianal area and very often across the muscles which are very important for continence, which are the sphincter, the internal and external sphincter of the anus. And the anatomy of this fistula can vary. They can be uh, basically going through the sphincter or above the sphincter or between the internal and external sphincter, making them very complex and difficult to treat and to heal. Have you observed fistulas that are still in the process of forming? Do they tend to start preferentially forming from one direction or another, or do they start on both and go towards each other in the middle? No, no, no. You, you, you can have just one simple fistula tract, or you can have complex fistula, multiple fistula tract. Some, uh, some patients, unfortunately, they have up to five, four to five different fistula tracts. Some have only one. Are they usually dead ends? Like you have a hole that leads to a pocket, or are they like tubes where it goes no, no, literally no, from one area to another? No, no, this is what I, I was telling you. It's, it's a track, so there is, no, there is no dead end. I mean, sometimes you are, you are right, some fistula, especially when they are interior, so they are not uh, communicating with the outside, they, they have a dead end. And actually, very often when you have this dead end, there is a risk of forming an abscess because the fistula is not draining well. Yeah, I guess the fistula is like an inverted polyp, where a polyp is a... Uh, somewhat, I yes. <laughs> somewhat. Uh, but, the, yeah, the, but the fistula, again, it's a kind of... It's a, it's a hole, you know, it's a track, you know? It's a communication. It's like an abnormal route <laughs> between the internal um, part of your body and the external part of your, of your, of your body. Is there any chance that the people that had them have always had them? They were just very small and not fully open, or they just didn't yeah, cause yeah, 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 disease? Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, uh, fortunately, a lot of patients have very simple fistulas that can be treated surgically. Some patients have complex fistula, um, which are which 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 can go very. Uh, I mean, up to the upper part of the of the perineum, you know, and and then. Those fistulas are much more difficult to treat. You 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 may have also internal fistula, for instance, in the small in the small bowel as a complications. You can have the inflammation inside the small bowel leading to a fistula, and this fistula coming from the small bowel, as you were mentioning, sometimes they have a dead end, sometimes they are communicating. So, for instance, you, you may have a fistula between two different loops of the small bowel or between one loop of the small bowel and the large bowel or, or one loop of the small bowel and the, and the bladder, which are, uh, uh, which are closed, actually. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Do you think that any of these uh, fistulas are formed during embryonic development? No, 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 not at all, not at all. This is a consequence of the inflammatory process. So what what happens, um, you know, when you close off a fistula, do you just sew up the holes? So, like, how do you resolve? So there are are different ways to treat. First, there are some medications, uh, antibiotics, and some of our new uh, drugs, which are called biologics, such as drug-blocking a cytokine which is called TNF, so the anti-TNF, 
are quite strong medications and they are so strong that they, they can basically uh, heal the fistula, uh, something which is more novel. And I must say that uh, this is certainly an area which is still an unmet need, but something which is more novel is that right now what we are studying, which is already approved in Europe, but we are studying in US, is to close the fistula by injecting uh, fat stem cell within the fistula tract. Has anyone looked at the uh, microbiome? Of the yes, fistula? of course, of course, of course. I was. What, what, what's noticed there? I was expecting this uh, question, of course. So, basically, uh, when you are thinking about what's causing uh, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, there are four different components. There is a genetic component, the environmental component, which is still, I must say, a black box. Then there is a microbiome and then there is the immune system. We know that the microbiome is abnormal in patients with IBD, meaning that the microbiome is not as rich as in normal people. There are more pro-inflammatory bugs and less anti-inflammatory bugs. What is still a question is that, is it primary? Is it a primary event? Meaning, is it is this, this what we call this dysbiosis, this disequilibrium of the microbiome, something which is primary, basically causing the disease, or is it just a mere consequence of the disease? We still we still don't know, but there is a huge interest in trying to manipulate the microbiome as part of our treatment. When we are talking about the fistula, we don't we don't really know. There are very few studies which have looked at the microbiome of the of the fistula, almost none actually. Oh, oh okay. I think it would be important to look at right near the yeah, hole yeah, in the middle of it. I agree with you. Interesting. So what's the consequence of having a fistula? What can it do to aggravate your condition? What happens? I mean imagine imagine that you are you have a, a fistula uh, in your perineum, close to your anus, okay? So meaning that there, are, there is pus uh, draining like every day. So with, uh, you know, soiling and so on. It's causing pain. If you have an abscess, you have acute pain uh, in your butt, you know, so it's very painful. And can you imagine how this can be um, a burden for a young guy or a young woman to have this uh, fistula tract draining in this perianal area? The yeah, impact of that... Yes, uh, the impact on their quality of life, and, you know, this is huge. In addition to these factors, though, can fistulas turn very pathogenic? Like, what what else can happen with them? How else do they complicate things? No, I mean, the the worst that may happen is that there there are abscess forming because the fistulas are not draining, and the worst that may happen is that they will never close and they will continue to drain. So uh, very often you are, we are we are we are putting and this is done by the surgeons a small drain within the fistula so that the the pus actually could drain to avoid the formation of of an abscess. But the price to pay is that of course it will drain so you will have pus coming uh, basically uh, like uh, every day you know so this is this is very tough again. So uh, back to um IBD. So you said that there are now drugs if it's uh, caught yes. early enough that uh, you'll get a deep remission. So far, yes. that's the best. 
Where do you think the extra understanding is going to come from? Is it going to be figuring out how it arises in the first place, or is it in the microbiome? Like, there's several uh, avenues, I guess. Of, this, is, uh, this is a very good. This is a very good question. So we have we have now a lot a lot of drugs. So the first point that I really want to make is that the most important is to use these drugs and at the at the right time. What I'm seeing, especially in US, is that very often there is a long delay between first symptoms and diagnosis. Because you know when you are a young, young guy or young woman, you have abdominal pain, diarrhea, very often you don't think about uh, IBD. And to, to make an early diagnosis and to intervene early, this is key. Because if you are using these medications early on, their efficacy is much stronger first. Second, we have a, a, a list of different drugs that are basically mostly working on the immune system because we didn't talk uh, about that, but actually the most important part, the part that we know the best in IBD, is that the mucosal immune system is disturbed. So there, there are a lot of inflammatory components which are made in excess in the gut, and basically all the drugs that we have now are shutting down the production of these inflammatory components. But unfortunately, what we are seeing is that we are plateauing, meaning that with the best drugs that we have available, maybe we can bring in remission after one year, let's say 50% of patients. So there is still a big, a big gap. So the main problem that we have is that we don't understand, and this is absolutely striking, why some patients are responding to one drug and some patients are not responding at all. So I believe in the future, huge progresses could come from the identification of biomarkers, which could be in the blood or which could come from, from, from the gut, you know, when we are taking biopsies, and you will have a biomarker in your blood, like in cancer, actually, where you could say to one patient, because you have this biomarker in your blood, this is the drug that I need to give you because I know that it will, it will work very well. And then we can break the saline, you know, instead of having 50% of remission going up to 70, 80%. Something else that we are working on as well is because those drugs are not perfect, trying to combine, combine different mechanisms of action. Then manipulation of the microbiome, which is promising, but still, it's very slow to progress, you know. I'm pretty sure you have heard about this uh, fecal transplant, you know, where basically you can try to change the microbiome of a sick patient, replacing his bad microbiome with a good microbiome from someone else. But it's still not perfect. There is certainly a very interesting component of the treatment, which is by manipulating the diet as well, because we believe the diet has something maybe an, uh, a role in causing the disease, and you can improve your microbiome with a uh, diet. And then there are a lot of different aspects of the care of those patients. You know, there is a psychological burden. Um, you know, this is, this is huge for those young guys to very often young people to be involved, to have this disease, you know, when they are building their life, when they are working, starting to work, building the family and so on. So, the psychological burden is huge. 
This is why, for instance, at Sinai, we are really trying to provide a holistic care where we are not only treating the gut of the patient, but we are treating the, the, the patient, the human, the human being. So uh, trying to help them with psychologists, with dietitians, uh, on the top of uh, doctors, meaning of, of uh, doctors and, and including surgeons. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, has there been any correlation found? Diet, eaten, age, ethnicity, genetic markers, etc., that that correlate with a higher likelihood of uh, yeah, yes. bones or also colitis. So the first thing to know is that those diseases are mostly diseases of the of the young. You know, the median age um, to get Crohn's disease is approximately 25, and 35 for uh, ulcerative uh, colitis. There is certainly a genetic predisposition, and some uh, ethnicities are more predisposed to get the disease. Um, for instance, um, uh, Jewish people are more prone to develop the disease because their uh, genetic risk is, is uh, higher. Uh, but still, there is a black box, which is what, is what are the environmental factors which are triggering the disease. And I must say, you know, I have been in this, in this field for 40 years, and we, we have not made a lot of progresses. What do we know? We know strikingly smoking, for instance, is a risk factor for Crohn's disease, but believe it or not, it's a protective factor for ulcerative colitis. So, so meaning that if you are a heavy smoker and you stop smoking, then you have, a, you have an increased risk to get ulcerative colitis. This is not to say that you shouldn't stop smoking because your risk of other disease is much higher if you continue to smoke. But still, this is striking. And then we believe that most likely there is something wrong in the early life events, meaning exposure to antibiotics, uh, maybe some infections. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe exposure to some polluants. We believe that the environmental factors are most likely very important in the childhood. And there are amazing studies, for instance, in immigrants, showing that uh, immigrants, for instance, we did a study with our friends from Denmark, immigrants arrive from countries where there is a low incidence of their disease, and the first generation has still a low incidence of the disease, but the second generation is catching up because they are exposed to the risk factors very early during their life because they are in, in, a, in a new country with a high risk of the disease, which is really pointing to the fact that it's mostly, most likely early life, which is, which is a key driver, but we still don't know what. Hmm. Um, are there countries or there are people that never seem to have IBD, any form of it, and uh, what's unique about that? Maybe uh, this is a this is a very good this is a very good question. The the question is yes, but maybe they are not recognized. For instance, um, it's very clear that we have we have much less studies, for instance, from uh, Africa. So, for instance, uh, there are almost no data about uh, IBD in Africa. There are data about Northern Africa, about South uh, Africa. But, uh, for instance, I don't know any good uh, study. So those diseases, I think, don't exist, or maybe they are not yet recognized. Maybe it will change, uh, because generally speaking, 
the incidence of the disease is increasing with a westernized way of life, you know. And uh, this is what we have seen with uh, Asia, for instance, with Japan, with, uh, with uh, China, with India. This, this is when I, when I started to work, when I started like 40 years ago, nobody knew about uh, Crohn's disease or uh, ulcerative colitis in, in Japan or in uh, China. Even though they very good doctors there who, who, were, who knew the, those diseases, but they didn't exist. And now they are, they, are, they are seeing an increasing number of cases, which is striking. And obviously, you can't avoid to think that this is because their way of living has, has changed. And, you know, I think mostly their uh, dietary habits uh, has changed. So what do you think is the, uh, the future of understanding IBD? So this is what I was telling you at the beginning. I think... This is why I'm, I'm deeply involved in that research, and I've built a consortium international group to work on that. I believe that we need to look at what is happening before we can uh, recognize the disease. If we can catch the disease, understand the disease before it occurs, you know, in someone who has a genetic risk factors, what what is causing the disease, we need to look to study those, those patients, preferably before. But you will, you will tell me, how can we do that? So it's, it's tough. But for instance, there is a way to do that by looking. There are fantastic resources, for instance, in the, in the US. We recently did a, a, a phenomenal study, I think, with a, a Department uh, of Defense of the US Army where we took the opportunity of having SERA uh, from recruits uh, from the U.S. Army, where there are millions of SERA. And of course, some of those soldiers were enrolled in the U.S. Army when they were 18 or, or uh, something like that, eventually developed Crohn disease. But the beauty of the uh, system at the DOD is that they are storing samples serum from those soldiers every two years. So we were able to access to SERA up to 10 years, five years, and so on, before, before their disease occurred. And we have just published, I think, a great paper showing we were able to find in the blood of those recruits some markers, some markers that were already there five years before the first symptom. Oh, and wow. we are now doing more studies using those blood samples. There are also big studies in families where you may have a lot of kids with the same disease. And we want to understand why some kids will develop the disease, why some kids will never develop the disease. So there are a lot of uh, initiatives all around the world to look at this preclinical phase of the disease. Because once the disease has started, it's difficult, you know, because it's difficult to know what is secondary and what is primary. And right. I believe deeply that if we want to find the cause of the disease, we need to look before the symptoms have occurred. Yeah, it makes sense. But it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an easy task, you know. Uh, yeah. But I, 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 was in a, I was in a joke. It's been a, a pain in your ass for 40 years, right? <laughs> yes. But frankly, I, I must say that, you know, when uh, I started, basically, we had no drugs. Huh? We, have, we had only steroids huh? with a mm -hmm. lot of side effects and so on. So 
I have, uh, you know, I have seen all the development of these new drugs, and I have seen, I mean, this is uh, this was rewarding. We were able to change the life of those young patients. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, I have a huge message of optimism. We are we are doing better and better. We have we have better drugs every day. We have good drugs, uh, either uh, intravenous, subcutaneous, and new oral drugs. The point is that the point is that the quality of care matters. It's key for a young patient to be diagnosed as soon as possible and to have access to the best care because his or her or his life can be changed. And what I'm seeing, and this is killing me, sometimes I'm seeing patients who have been, obviously they had Crohn's disease for four, five years, and they arrive in the in our emergency department with obstruction, complication, those fistulas that we were talking uh, about. And the disease has progressed because uh, those diseases are progressing. You know, it's, it's the same for all these immune-mediated diseases. If you discuss with rheumatologists, if you catch rheumatoid arthritis at the beginning, you will control, you will control the disease. Of course, there is a, a price to pay. You will be on medication. But you will never see anymore those patients that I remember very well in my childhood. You know, those old ladies with their bones completely deformed by the disease. This doesn't exist anymore. This doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. Well, it's a a good thing that you're doing. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? How can they get in touch? Um, I think the best way is to... I think we have a website of the IBD center um, and um, of course I have published a lot of papers almost 900 now uh, almost all uh, related to IBD but there is a website uh, for the IBD uh, center which is uh, Leonard Emsley uh, Trust and uh, Suzanne and Leonard Feinstein IBD center so it's an IBD center at ICANN School of Medicine and we have a website, and um, people can uh, look at, at that. There are also, I must say that there is a, a, a fantastic role played by patients' association, especially in U.S. There is a CCFA, which is a Crohn's and Colitis uh, Association, um, which is playing a fantastic role for counseling patients, supporting research. And this is very important. This is a very important point as well because very often um, you, it's absolutely key to have access to good data, reliable data on the web, you know. And there are a lot of websites which are wrong, you know. Uh, people telling you know what I know what's causing Crohn's disease. You should do uh, Y or Z. You should take this diet or you know blah 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 something which is based on nothing. So it's key. It's key to have access to good uh, web to, to good uh, websites such as the one of the CCFA. Yeah. Well, very good, Jean Frederick. Thank you for coming, and thank you for your decades of uh, work on these diseases that affect a lot of people. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.